you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Good morning, church family. It's a pleasure for Donna and I to be back with you this morning and to be able to open God's Word and to study it with you. I was uh, thinking on the way here that while it's kind of miserable outside, and it's not really as miserable as the winter, right? Would we give at least, we can, we can agree with that, that it's not snow, right? You don't have to shovel this or scrape this. It just seems to flow away. But I don't know about you, but I'm kind of ready for warm weather that lasts. Do you kind of feel that way? Are you looking forward to doing a little bit more outside and seeing things actually take off and grow? There's the beginning of spring. Ah, It just makes our hearts feel glad. And this morning, we're dipping into a context that is a little bit like the weather. Meaning that the context as we're walking through these passages from John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, which uh, precedes the crucifixion of Christ, we're in these final days. As a matter of fact, in chapter 13, we realize that the preparation for communion, the Passover meal itself, is ongoing, although the actual act of Jesus instituting communion isn't present in John. It's found in the other Gospels. But John is far more concerned relationally with who Jesus is and how he's relating to the disciples. It would be possible for us to read this passage of Scripture and really read it from the perspective of watching someone else, watching Jesus interact with the disciples. But I want to suggest to you that one of the ways the Bible is written is invitationally, meaning it allows us to come into the scene as a participant. To to sit there as a disciple whose name isn't listed, but whom we know in Christ we belong to him, and therefore his words are as much to us as they are to those that are present in this context. And the context is challenging. Jesus is facing the cross, but the disciples really don't understand that. Jesus is ready for the betrayal. He's already identified Judas, who the rest of the disciples missed. And when the bread was being passed at the Passover meal, and he dipped into uh, the wine and handed it to Judas, he said, what you have to do, go and do. Uh, He was very much aware of who Judas was. And yet the nature of God, evident in the person of Jesus as the incarnate God among us, was to be patient with him was to be kind to him, was to give him every opportunity of changing his course and redirecting his life as a follower rather than as someone on the outside looking in with a question mark. Is he? And deciding he isn't. And then betraying him even with a kiss. That's coming later in in, in a passage further along. What I'm suggesting to you at this point is that you could, as we've been reading these chapters, imagine the tremendous pressure that Jesus is under. 
His life is going to come to a conclusion as the Lamb of God who lays down his life and takes the sin of the world into himself, dying in our place. It's remarkable. And yet, you know what he doesn't do? As some of us might slip into is is to say to people, do you know what it's costing me to be in this right now? Really appealing to them to what? To support us. But what Jesus does is demonstrates how he as God in human form is even supporting his followers while he's going to be paying the ultimate price. Remarkable. He's demonstrating he is for us, not against us. He is demonstrating he wants nothing from us until he has given everything to us. And then what he wants from us is not a payment. It is not that we give to him so that we gain more or that we somehow become worthy of what it is he's giving us. We can never do that. Rather, we receive it and walk in the light as he is in the light. We have nothing to give him. We have everything to gain from him. And so as we do that, as we walk with Jesus and the disciples, we're just going to take a moment and pray and say, uh, invite God himself to open our hearts and to be our teacher today and to lead us into those things he wants us to know and apply. Father, we've already set the stage that this is a difficult place we get to observe your son, our Savior, Jesus, as he speaks to the disciples so kindly, compassionately, carefully, tenderly, uh, consistently with his repetition, reminding them of who he is, of why he's come. And even though they don't understand, he is not hard on them. He doesn't overcorrect them. He doesn't tell them how disappointed he might be in them, but he patiently leads them. Father, would you still patiently lead us? Would you remind us that we are not only your followers, but you have good things for us if we will receive them? Would you open our eyes to see them? Would you create within us both a hunger that you can then fill through your word, would you create within us a desire to walk with you and receive every good thing you have from us? And we will give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think I've set the stage, friends, and John has recorded these events not only to see it from a factual standpoint, but also, I believe, to experience it from a fully aware emotional standpoint. To see within the scripture, not only is there a story being formed that we should know with our mind, but that we should embrace with all of that which God has given us, mind and emotion, heart and strength. And so I'm suggesting a a different reading of the historical account. I'm telling you to put yourself in the story and to lean into all its benefits because God invites us to encounter him in his word. So the first thing that Jesus does in this passage of Scripture, as we break into it in John chapter 14 and and verse 25, is to remind the disciples of 
two important aspects of his relationship with them. And the first one is to tell them and remind them again that his relationship with us is not dependent upon his physical presence with us. Now, there's a part of us that should be very glad of that. Because if Jesus was physically present with us, he couldn't be physically present elsewhere. Do you understand what I mean by that? There's a limitation in the incarnation. The limitation is he's experiencing life as we do. He's sandwiched into one physical being, and it contains him. No, I'm not saying the limitation is that he is not equal to God the Father or somehow less than the Spirit, but I am saying that the incarnation is a limitation, if you would agree with that. It doesn't limit his knowledge. It doesn't limit, as it were, his status with God. But this union of humanity and the deity of God together does have aspects that we can enter and go, now that's quite amazing that he would choose to be a man and endure the limitations that we all experience in this form. We get hungry, don't we? So did God. He experienced hunger and thirst and weariness, and struggle, and anxiety. He, he knew all of those things. He was acquainted with that. There's a song that says, man of sorrows, what a name. Because he was acquainted with our grief, our suffering, our weakness. He endured it, embraced it, and demonstrated his godness within it. But he's reminding the disciples in these opening verses that that is going to change. Look at verse 25 and see it again. For you heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. And the disciples are quite confounded by that. Is he taking a trip? Where is he going? Doesn't he want to stay with us? What's happening? He told them plainly he was going to die. This is what he's meaning. But the disciples at this point are not really able to get with the dynamic, distressing, troubling truth that Jesus says he's going to die. They don't want that. They can't imagine that the disciple, that, pardon me, that the Messiah, whom they are following as disciples, that the Messiah would do anything other than prevail. God's going to bless him. And we know that. But the pathway through that blessing is going to be his sacrifice. Willing, intended, purposed, chosen. And, and so he's saying to them these words, he's going away and he's going to come back. He said, but if you loved me, you'd be very glad for me that I'm going to the Father because the Father is greater than I am. And we look at that and go, I, I don't understand. What's he talking about? Is he somehow less? Is he introducing us to, to a strange concept that somehow the, the, the Jesus himself is less than the Father? What he's actually saying is, because I am doing what the Father has asked, I have willingly surrendered my will to him. And I'm going to the one who's had this plan always. The Father has always held this. I'm acting out what he wants done. I'm in complete agreement. And therefore, what have I done? I have taken on the what? Form of a servant. Right? That's what Paul writes to us in Philippians. It's all woven into these few phrases. These are so important for us understanding 
how each person in the Godhead is different, and yet there is only one God in whom they are all united. It's the Trinity. And if you're saying, well, that is a little bit beyond my understanding. Welcome to humanity. None of us fully understand it. But all of us accept it in that God is describing his own nature. Three persons, one essence. Father, Son, and Spirit. We're introduced to them all in this passage of Scripture. I'm going to the Father who's greater than I. I'm obeying to him. I, I, I am yielding and humbling myself before his will and way because I want it done. But when I go to him, something great is going to happen. Let's read on and see what that is. Because he says to us, I'm going to the Father. No, I've told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you're going to believe. Now he's going to refer to this a little bit later again. I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me. What is it that Jesus is describing? He's describing that when he leaves, God is going to be sending, as we read in the previous paragraphs of this chapter, he's going to be sending God the Holy Spirit as his representative. Now that's very interesting. Because if we see the progression, God the Father sent Jesus as what? His representative. And we've seen him, the glory, as the one and only begotten Son of the Father, right? That's all written in John, and we see that. He's come among us. Why? To demonstrate what God would be like if he was a man among us. That is exactly what Jesus is. The fullness of God dwells in him in bodily form. Oh, that's what God is like, right? Patient, kind, clear, right? Uncompromising. Holds to that which he said, always keeps his word, never breaks it, fulfills everything perfectly. Uh, we know why at times when the disciples were were being asked questions by Jesus that they kind of pulled back a little. He said, how long have I been with you and still you don't know who I am? A little short with him. Would you agree? Because he's been so plain. Now, why can't they see? The answer is, well, they're blind. They are so conditioned by their culture and the rabbinical, pardon me, the rabbinical interpretation of the Messiah that they can't see Jesus for who he is right in front of him. Now, please don't tell me that could never happen to you. Men, isn't this true that you wake up with your wife after 30 years and you discover things about her you should have known a long time ago? You know what I'm saying? Because we at times see who it is we want to see instead of seeing who is really there. Do you know what I mean by that? A parent who says, oh, my little Sammy would never do that. Oh, get a grip. Because little Sammy has been caught doing that. But you know what I'm saying? We don't see realistically who is in front of us because we have things that blind us. So we slip into their skin and we go... Wow, what am I missing that God wants me to know? Fair question, right? So he's telling him, he's resetting the stage. He's reminding them that our ongoing relationship with God is not dependent on Jesus' continued physical presence. 
and they don't know that, and they don't, if they do sort of get a glimpse of it, they don't particularly like it. Why? Because they want to continue to walk with Jesus. They've met him. They like him. They've befriended him. They trust him. They don't want a journey without him. But what Jesus is telling us is that when he leaves, there is another representative that is going to come. And as Jesus embodies the Father and shows us what God would be like if he lived among us, the Holy Spirit now fills us, what? With the same nature and life of God himself revealed to us in the person of Jesus. As a matter of fact, when the Holy Spirit comes and resides in us, who does he glorify and who does instruct us about? Jesus. He, he doesn't say, pay attention to me, I'm the Spirit, I'm important, you know. He says, it's all about Jesus. And I am here to make sure you know his words and his ways. Our relationship isn't dependent upon the physical presence of God. It sets us as it were, free to know that God is able to be among all of us equally, uniformly, consistently at all times. Whether you're in Sri Lanka with Pastor Ronald right now, or with Doreen, his wife, who's here. Same spirit, both places, doing equal work. Isn't it phenomenal to think about that? We in North America don't have a corner on God. He is among all of us. Through his work, through his death and resurrection, the Spirit of God is now able to invade us all equally. Powerful, important. Secondly, our relationship with God is started and sustained by the Holy Spirit who indwells us as the divine representative. Now, there's more of that that's outside this passage of Scripture. But I'm leaning into those truths and summarizing them here. And, and what Jesus is telling us is, Earlier, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not abandoning you. But they're going to feel abandoned, aren't they? You know, it's like mom and dad who are going off on a, maybe a date. They're going out for dinner. Or maybe they're going to friends and it's an adults-only event. And they leave the, you know, little Sam. I'm going to keep using his name at home by himself. Well, no, not at all. He's got a babysitter, but he feels like he's on his own because his parents aren't there, and he doesn't like that very much. And so he whines a little, and then maybe he cries right out loud. And they say, now, don't worry. We're going to be back. It's okay, and there's someone with you. And he goes, well, I don't like that one. I want you. Now, he has his own way of saying it and protesting. You know what I'm saying. But, you know, parents don't abandon their kids. They care for them if they're good parents. And God is not going to abandon us. He cares for us. He doesn't leave us orphaned. And when the Spirit of God comes in, it is that He brings the presence of God into our lives. This is why Jesus is telling us that having the Spirit is actually better for us and we should be happy He's going to the Father because the change will be great. And we go, well, I'm not so sure about that. I kind of like it under these terms. Thank you very much. Do I have a say in this? And the answer is no. Why? Because he's fulfilling the Father's plan. And the Father's plan is that he would be in and among all of us and that that would be ours as a benefit through the death and resurrection of his only beloved son, Jesus. 
You see, the third person of God, the Holy Spirit, does more than simply be with us. He, he, he is called the Comforter. And it's interesting as you read the translations here, the reference to the Holy Spirit is sometimes he's called the Helper. Sometimes he's called the Advocate. Sometimes he's called the Counselor. Sometimes he's called the Holy Spirit. What does that really mean? Because Holy Spirit is often in the, in the New Testament, a Greek word is used, paraklete, parakletos, the one who comes alongside. It's very comforting sound, isn't it? Someone who comes alongside you and is with you in trouble and conflict and difficulty and need. But there's this other side. He is the advocate who gives you what you need even when you don't know you need it and maybe at that time when you actually don't want that. It says there are two particular things that the Spirit of God is going to do for us in this passage of Scripture. It says that, you know, that the Spirit of God is going to come, who is the counselor, who is the Holy Spirit, but he's going to give us several things that we could not gain from him any other way. The Holy Spirit in the first place is going to be our teacher, it says. He is going to, he is going to tell us those things that we need to know. Because the Holy Spirit is our teacher, we can have confidence in our ability to read and understand and apply the Scripture. He will lead us into His truth. Which is a remarkable statement, but it needs a little bit of unpacking. Because if the Holy Spirit is going to be your teacher, in the same way, taking the same truth that Jesus Himself brought and fulfilled then does that mean I'm going to have all the truth I need because the Holy Spirit's in me and he's going to teach me? Well, that would be lovely, wouldn't it? To have instant knowledge and encyclopedia of spiritual truth right there. But if you stop and think about it, when Jesus was with the disciples, did they know everything? Even though he taught them, did they get it? Did he have to teach them a number of times the same thing and, and repeat it several times and sometimes even forcefully confront them with it. Some of you are not and go, yeah, yeah, no, Jesus had to do all of that. Well, do you think the Holy Spirit's going to have the same process with us? Ah, so you and I are understanding right away. I heard someone say, yes, I'm going to camp on that. Why is it then if Jesus is the teacher of the disciples and they don't get it and the Holy Spirit is our teacher you're saying we don't get it quickly necessarily either, and that's the answer. True, true. Why? Well, why are you the way you are? Why do you need to learn other things? Why is it uh, that we as part of the human race will sit in a classroom and have the teacher say the same thing again and again and again, and it goes in one ear and, oh yeah, we don't retain it. Why not? Well, we might not be listening. We might be preoccupied. We could be distracted. We could doubt what we're being told. We could go, oh, I don't know if that's going to work. You understand what I'm saying. In the same way, having a teacher does not mean that the student gets everything the teacher gives. So when you're a little frustrated and you're saying, God, would you make this simpler? He might say back to you, would you pay attention a little more intently? You know, have you ever had a child and asked them this stupid question as a parent? I've had three children. I've asked, uh, I, I know what I'm talking about here. When you catch your child doing something they shouldn't be doing, and you say to your child, 
what were you thinking? Right? As if the child should know. You know, the, the child looks at you a little perplexed. Is this a trick question? <laughs> because they were thinking about... I, I have a friend of mine who has a child like him, actually. He would say that. A little bit like me, too. So one day, the kid came home crying. He'd had a crash with his bike. And the dad was, oh, starting to be compassionate and caring for him. And he said, no, just a minute. What were you doing when you had this accident with the bike? Well, the boy, through tears, blubbered. And he said, well, I was driving my bike with my eyes closed. He said, go talk to your mother. Because he had no compassion left at that point. The result of the accident was his own what? Stupidity. You understand what I'm saying? I'm having a little fun with you. But sometimes when we, when we come to the scriptures, we forget who we are in reading the scriptures. Our humanity, our own form, our weakness. What it is that God himself is working through with us when he brings us this teaching and training. Are you following? But we can conclude, oh God, the Holy Spirit is my teacher. I'm going to get it all. You're going to get as much as you can retain. You're going to get as much as you are open to. You are going to get as much as you want and are seeking and are willing to use and apply. And it is going to be as frustrating for you under his leadership as it is for you under any leadership. Fair? Let's just hold that in our hand. Knowing, because here's the problem. Sometimes we can get thinking about ourselves more highly than we ought. Fair? Is that a problem for us as human beings? You're nodding. Okay, I'm not the only one that has that difficulty. Uh, I'm really glad that you are tracking with me. Because you see, here's the deal. We can say, well, I'm opening up the Bible. Oh, it says this. It means this. Be a little cautious with that. Particularly if what you think it means is novel and unique to you and nobody else has ever come up with that before. You should be very cautious of that, right? Now, I'm playing with you, but you understand our nature that we can say to each other, I don't really need any other teachers, thank you very much. I've got God, the Holy Spirit. He is sufficient. Now, look. God, the Holy Spirit, is your teacher, unquestionably. It does mean you can open up the scripture and read it and wrestle with it, and he will be your guide. It doesn't mean you are now infallible and will get it all right. For all the reasons we've already talked about. So yes, lean into him. Trust him. Ask him to teach you. Pray that he would open your eyes. He would remove your blindness. That he would instruct you in your way. Excellent things. And then be very cautious. In the right sense of that. Not to doubt that he's in you and leading you. But that you have it all. Right? Because he's also given other gifts to the church, including in Ephesians, you know, chapter 4, he's given what? Prophets and pastors and teachers and apostles and evangelists. Why? So that we will be what? Equipped for effective ministry and maturity. It's all part of his design in the team, in the family. And we shouldn't leave that out in our excitement to say, God, the Holy Spirit is my teacher. Amen. Lean on him with a caution about our own humanity 
and frailty. Now, there's a second thing it says that he's going to do. It says that he's going to lead us into all truth, fair, but he's also going to bring to remembrance all that Jesus has said. Now, I like that. The Holy Spirit is our great nudger. Man, that means that the Holy Spirit's elbow is as sharp as your wife's when she goes like this and reminds you, right? No, I'm not saying all wives do that to all husbands. You know what I mean. I'm teasing you a little, trying to use a human metaphor that we need because sometimes we imagine this is going to be, you know, gold-lettered and a walk in the park. It's so easy and so great. It's going to be at times very challenging when the Holy Spirit brings to your remembrance things you would rather not remember at that moment, like your promises, your commitments, your surrendering to Him. He's going to remind you of what Jesus has asked from you as his followers. He's going to bring into remembrance his teaching. But understand that the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance, and there's so many places this is written. One of them is in John chapter 2, where Jesus is talking about uh, dying. And this is what he says in verse 18. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing the things that you're doing, claiming to be Messiah, in other words? And Jesus answers in verse 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they are aghast. What? You're going to throw down what Solomon built over his lifetime, all of these years? It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? They think it's preposterous. Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Verse 22, therefore, when he was raised from the dead, it goes on to say, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken that he would be killed and raised the third day, just as he said. And often the Spirit of God will bring into remembrance wonderful truths that we need to lean on and to know. Let me apply another helpful uh, one that I often lean on in my own journey, a way that the Holy Spirit reminds us of who Jesus is in our lives. It comes from the Psalm, Psalm 32, verse 7 and 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. And this is going to be on the text, uh, is going to be on the screen. I will instruct and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye on you. Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. What the Holy Spirit is telling us at that point is that there are two ways he's going to lead us. One is he's going to lead us with bit and bridle with leash. I have our daughter's dog staying with it. Its name is Snoopy. It is such an affectionate dog. Its tail will wag every vase off every piece of furniture in the house. He is excited to see me every morning. I'm going to take him for a walk. I was walking him this morning. That's why I was a little bit later arriving at the building than I wanted to be because I miscalculated the time. Snoopy takes it. Well, the thing with Snoopy is he's also very willful. And I have him on a leash, but what I didn't know, he's a Dalmatian retriever cross, is that Dalmatians were bred to be carriage dogs. That means they pulled wagons and loads and people. 
So when I yank back on him, it means nothing at all. It means, oh, just put it in first and keep going. So we have to control them on a leash because when that dog gets free, if it smells a rabbit, good luck. That dog is lost till it decides to be found. I think that's a lot like me, right? Can you see yourself in some of those traits? So God says, you've got a choice. I can lead you where you want to go with my eye on you. Oh, Dave, right, just a little to the left. Stay true. That's, that's where I want you. I've got my eye on you. You're doing so well. Good job, Dave. Or, come on, and I'm dragging them in resistance. You know what I'm saying. It was C.S. Lewis who coined such a wonderful phrase, I feel like I was the only convert that was dragged, kicking and screaming into heaven. Why? Because he was such a strong-willed thinker that God needed to address him where he was living, confront him in such a way that he was willing to be found. Do you understand? Does God the Holy Spirit remind me that this is how God works in my life? You bet. You will find not only the precise words of the New Testament gospel that Jesus will bring to your mind, but all that he had in store for you in the Gospels, all the Old Testament, all the writings that are added through the apostles after. And they will be at times like a beam of sunlight into your life, and you're going, I just want to live in this moment a little longer. And they will at other times be confrontational and directed and challenging because it's what you need. Do you understand? He will bring it all into your remembrance. He will lift these things that you might have the benefit. In this passage of Scripture, Jesus then says to us in, in verse 27, he writes and says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. So here Jesus is facing this impending crucifixion. And he says to us as his disciples, you're going to have the Spirit of God. He's going to give you all of this benefit. He's going to be my representative in your life. He's going to be among all of you equally. He's going to lead you and teach you and remind you. It's wonderful, isn't it? It's great. It's so encouraging, challenging and comforting, all that we need. And then he says, I'm giving you my peace. And then we need to put a period there and go, what does he mean? Because I don't think this group of people, these disciples, these 11, because Judas is now gone, ready to betray him, right? He's, he's, he's getting his silver. What, 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 what is it that these men could receive and anticipate? What does it mean? Jesus' words to this small group of 11 who have given up their livelihood and they're following him and they're beginning to understand this Messiah is not predictable. He is not like what our culture has told us to expect. Where was the peace of God as they go through this experience? Where was the peace of God when Peter denies him three times and then says, well, you know what? I'm benching myself. I'm going fishing. Anyone to join me? Right? He, he has no future. He has no hope. He, he thinks he's done. 
He shamed himself. He shamed the Lord. What, 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 where can he turn? As I'm unpacking this, let me give you what I've experienced. I want to suggest to you that we're often very afraid of our emotions. Now, you don't know this about me, but I'm telling more of my story as is appropriate. I've been in therapy for over three years. I wish I'd been in therapy 40 years ago. So does my wife, actually. For all the good reasons that you could imagine, I am learning so many things. But I went to a therapist initially because I was struggling with identifying emotions and having emotions that I felt were appropriate in context. Because this is what I said to my therapist. Well, as a pastor, over all of the years of my career, I would have someone come into my office and they would be so broken, so devastated, they would be weeping. And I would say to myself, well, two of us can't weep because someone has to figure out what to do next. As a way of what? Excusing myself from feeling. Stuffing. Wisely, my therapist, who is very experienced, actually uh, a psychiatrist, uh, practices many therapies and only sees Christian leaders. Wow, I didn't know there were so many of us that needed that. Uh, yes, no, that's not true. I really do. What I'm saying is she, she then paused and she said, you know, Dave, what's interesting is you can't choose which emotions to suppress when you decide not to feel. You just don't feel anger or you just don't feel sadness as you choose. You stop feeling all of them. And you live completely in the left side of your brain and you ignore the right side. And that's why you're here in part. I can help you, she said. And she has, powerfully, in a Christian framework, worldview. What I'm saying to you is that sometimes, because we don't want certain emotions, as Christians, we believe our emotions aren't good. We shouldn't trust them. And therefore, we actually suppress them. But you do know who gave you emotions, don't you? You're made in the image and likeness of? Oh. Is God emotional? Really? I'm so glad you know that. Yes. Right? Did Jesus weep? Oh, yes, he did. Hmm. Does God have regret? Does he express it? Yes. I regret that I made men, right? And chooses Noah. Read it. It's powerful. There's emotions laden in all of these things. Is God ever pleased? Yeah, yes, he is. Is that emotional? When you're pleased, do you feel it? It would be sad if you didn't. Oh, I'm very pleased, <laughs> right? What is it? If you're happy and you know it, right? Stamp your feet. You know this kid's song. I'm telling you at this point that peace is indeed both a state and an emotion. But we're challenged by it because we fail to understand like all our emotions, they wave. Are you consistently happy? No, you'd like to be, right? Others around you might want you to be. In the same way, are you consistently sad? And the answer is, if you stay in that, it, there's a form of depression that happens, right? 
We understand that, sorrow and sadness and other things. No, I'm pushing you because we bring to this passage of Scripture an expectation when we read this word that he gives us his peace. We go, well, where is it? I don't feel very peaceful right now. And therefore, we think there's something wrong with us or there's something wrong with the promise or we've missed some kind of a connection and we go on a hunt to find it. But what I'm suggesting in this passage of Scripture that as Jesus was experiencing all of those things, was there a peace in there? Well, I'm not sure. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was that a peaceful statement? You know, I, I'm pushing you here. Uh, sort of as a group study and think. Because in my opinion, I don't think it was a peaceful moment. Does that mean he, he wasn't at peace? No, if he hadn't been at peace with God, he would never have made the decision to obey the Father and to in agony say, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, your will be done. I surrender, I submit, I choose it. But we imagine that peacefulness at that point would feel differently. So can you be a man of peace and do a peaceful thing without feeling that peace in the moment? Of course you can. Can you do a loving thing and not feel that loving? Absolutely. Is it wrong? Absolutely not. Sometimes you need to let your emotions catch up with your leadership. But if you always live outside your emotions, that wouldn't be a good thing. Now, I'm pushing all of these pieces because our experience can and will be touched by the hope and framework of God being with us. I'm not in this alone. And when the moment dawns on you, there's a quality of peace that passes understanding that defies logic, as our brother said. Will it always be consistent? It might not be. But God at times will not deliver us, but will be with us in our suffering and anguish. That was true in the Old Testament, the story of Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were in the fiery furnace, and then suddenly it's reported they're walking around. Nebuchadnezzar the king says, come out. And they do, unharmed. Unharmed. Will God do that for you? Well, maybe. Did he deliver all of the prophets? Absolutely not. Some of them were sawn apart. Elijah put into a well. Some suffered enormously. Some were killed. So you cannot say his peace means everything in my life will be peaceful. And if I don't feel that there's something wrong with me or wrong with his promise... It means that undergirding your experience is the willingness to allow God to embrace you and comfort you. And you can walk through the experience even at times when your emotions are not in line with your thinking. That's okay. As long as it's not that way all the time. Right? So when he says, I'm giving you peace, what does he mean? I'm giving you the assurance I'm always with you. I'm giving you the awareness that I'll never forsake you. I'll never let you go. He cannot love us more than he's demonstrating on the cross. And he will not love us less based on his character and promises. You're covered. 
So you can lie down in peace or you can turn your face to the wall like maybe Joseph did in prison and say, where are you? Or Hezekiah and weep when he knew his life was ending. Or like Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Was that a peace-filled comment? I think it was. Did he like his situation? Not at all. Did he want it to be changed? Absolutely. So he wasn't content in it, but he was content with a God he knew that was leading him. Do you see the difference? So when he says, peace I give to you, he's saying, you can't earn this. And here's the good news, you can't deserve it. But I'm going to give it to you. Because there is nothing between our soul and the Savior. Nothing. So we come to him saying, I'm ashamed of myself. I should have done it better. I should have done it differently. Maybe we're going to slip into Paul, Peter's experience. I've got a job for you, Jesus says. And he says, well, I'm not worthy. Do you love me? We said, well, let's just be friends. Could I start with that? I can be your friend, but... I'm not sure I can knock it all out and be consistent as someone who genuinely, deeply, permanently loves you. He said, okay, feed my lambs. What am I saying to you? You're going to be disappointed in yourself. That doesn't diminish his promise. Others are going to be disappointed in you. That's not going to diminish his promise either. There are going to be times when you are in conflict and you don't know how to solve it. That's not going to end his presence. He's with you. He'll never leave you. He'll walk with you. So he's saying to us, it's better that I leave because when I leave someone, my representative will be in you and all of you. He said, when he comes, he's going to teach you everything. He's going to remind you of all the things you need to know. He's going to nudge you and work with you and, and, and govern you. And you can have the assurance of his peace that there is nothing you can do that will blot out his grace. There is no place you can go that will sever his grip. You are his. He is yours. So here's my final challenge. Based on what you've learned this morning in this passage, what will you do with it? Will you say, I am going to worship the God of grace who is bigger and present? Good choice. I'm going to come to him and ask him to open my eyes and lead me into truth. Good choice. But listen, I'm trying to salt the ideas, but you need to make your own statement. Based on what is written here, what will you do? How will you receive this and allow it to be transformative, to be encouraging, to be something that you know God is giving you that you want to act on? Write it down if you have a pen. Put it in your phone if you don't. Because here's the problem that all of us have. 
We listen to a message in the context of worship. We go, this is great. I'm going to practice this. We go out the door, and something happens to our decisions. The chalkboard gets erased. So what I'm suggesting is make a note to self to act on this. I, I wish I could meet with each of you next week and say, so how did it go? What did you do? What was your experience? Because in the Bible study, that's what should happen. We should choose to walk in it and then choose to report on it and decide either to change it or re-jig re it in some way to do it again. You know what I'm saying. It's called accountability. What I'm trying to do is encourage you to be accountable, to take the word and practice it. Father God, you've been among us today. Thank you so much for your son, Jesus. Thank you so much for what you did in him, through him, for us. And thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you for being among us. Thank you for being our teacher. Thank you for being the great reminder person who brings all of the things we would otherwise forget, not remember, not see, and nudge us to see them as they are. We pray you would continue the good work you've begun in us so that the day of your coming we will greet you with joy and honor. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.